This is episode 48 with Michelle Avery, Director of Operations at JA Consulting, a surrogacy service in Canada. And today we're talking about a topic that not a lot of people know much about, and that's creating families through surrogacy. I'm always surprised when a woman says to me, I would love to be a surrogate, but isn't it illegal? And they just don't know. It's just we're not educating enough. And I think if we had more valid education as to what surrogacy is, or women that are like, oh, I couldn't give up my baby, but they don't understand that they don't have to use their own names. Hey moms, are you tired of being tired? Or maybe yelling at your kids? Or maybe you need to know how to get your strength back postpartum? Or learn to manage your stress trying to do it all? or just to become a more confident mom? If so, then welcome to Citrus Love, keeping motherhood inspired. I'm Christiane Bégin, a mother of two, sharing inspiring conversations with wonderful people on how we can be mentally and physically stronger moms, and also including freshly squeezed ideas, a little bit of fun, so you can learn how to find balance and also how to raise strong, caring, confident kids in today's world. So if you're ready, let's get started. Hi, mamas. Welcome to another episode of Citrus Love Podcast. I hope you're having a great day, a great week, wherever you're listening. And since Christmas is around the corner, let's get into the feel of giving. But this is the ultimate gift, giving life. We're talking about it. giving the gift of surrogacy to two intended parents that are hoping and wishing, praying to start their own families with their own babies. When you're on an unconventional path or in a non-traditional partnership, families are still created in many other ways. And today we're talking about one of those ways. Maybe you're struggling with infertility. Maybe you're in a same-sex partnership or you don't have a partner, but you still want to have a child. Or maybe you love being pregnant pregnant and you want to give back, carrying a child for another couple. Or maybe you've seen celebrities mention it. Just to name a few celebrities, you might have heard Sarah Jessica Parker, the actress from Sex and the City, had a surrogate for her twin girls. Kim Kardashian had one for her third and fourth child. Ellen Pompeo from Grey's Anatomy, she had her second child with a surrogate. Alton John, Ricky Martin, Tyra Banks, Jimmy Fallon, Lucy Lee, just to name a few celebrities that most of us have heard of that have either created ex or expanded their families using a surrogate and give birth to their child. So if you're curious about understanding how does it work, how does someone become a surrogate, how does someone find a surrogate, and keeping motherhood inspired, we're going to dive deep related to surrogacy. And that's why this episode is a little bit longer because it's so needed. And as you'll hear, my guest, today's guest, Michelle, she knows her stuff. 
Wait till you hear about her own journey being a surrogate. That in itself is a very enlightening for someone that has no clue what is a surrogate and all that it entails. That surrogacy births have been on the rise. But the issue, as you'll hear, is you can't put out ads looking for a surrogate. And you'll learn why in this episode, there are waiting lists from couples to build a family and to have their baby. But since there's not enough surrogate mothers, then um, it takes a while for a lot of couples to actually um, have a child. So today's guest knows exactly the process of this motherhood journey from being a mom and having carried multiple pregnancies for other couples through surrogacy. So who is today's guest? Is Michelle Avery, Director of Operations at JA Consulting, a surrogacy service agency in Canada. Since 2008, she has been involved in third-party reproduction and surrogacy. Is a mother of a blended family of six kids. She's given birth to four kids and she was a surrogate to five other couple has given birth nine times. She's also a doula, a lobbyist in the surrogate community and paralegal diploma. She talks about the laws related to surrogacy, which is a big thing um, towards the end of this episode. So if you're interested in that, make sure to listen until the end. So today you'll learn the process from A to Z from both sides. So today we are removing the curtains and going behind the scenes to learn the basics, the who, the what, the how, the how much money you need, and you'll have a clear picture of what it is and how it works, how to speak to kids about it. We talk about it all. So the first half of the episode is more about her personal experience being a surrogate, the process, the emotions, some very common misconceptions around giving birth to a baby. The second part of the episode being an intended parent and the laws, the finances, who's the ideal candidate to be a surrogate and a specific criminal code that really needs to change related to surrogacy, which is very interesting. With that said, this episode will definitely open your eyes. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to share it with someone that would really appreciate this conversation, learning more about it, and tag us at Citrus Love Podcast, Facebook, Instagram, share the post. Let's get to it and listen to this conversation. Welcome, Michelle, to the Citrus Love Podcast. Thank you for being here today to talk with us about the surrogacy. No problem. I'm quite excited. So this is a topic I wanted to explore, honestly, because I've been hearing a lot about it from the media. I don't know anyone personally right. in my own circle. I've heard celebrities expanding their family using surrogate mothers, but it's still a topic that I find it hush-hush. And unless you've needed the surrogate, service or gone through it personally, we don't know much about it, how it works, apart from what you might see once in a while in a movie or in the media. Right. And it's not <laughs> always portrayed the best way in the movies. 
I want to start a bit talking about you going through the journey before we dive into the specifics of how everything works. So you describe yourself as a mother of six and a Canadian gestational surrogate. So you've been a surrogate to five other babies and you retired from it last summer, July 2019. So for most of us, um, this is not something we know much about. Right. Um, So can you take us through how you heard about surrogacy and what was your journey and eventually becoming a surrogate and now you're working helping other mothers and other parents through their own surrogacy journey. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So um, I I have no issues conceiving my own children. I was very blessed, uh, very lucky. I had no idea how many people were not that lucky. I was surprised to find out the staggering statistics of infertility in Canada which I didn't understand until two of my sisters had issues conceiving their children. So, you know, back in 2006, 2007, there is not a lot of information available on Google. There's not a lot of information available out there at all. And fertility is such a, it's such a faux pas subject for some people. It's still not openly discussed. I wish people would Mm -hmm. openly discuss it more because there is support out there for people. There's lots of different avenues that they have and they don't realize until they start talking. So my sisters had fertility issues. I did do some Googling. Of course, I had seen some uh, movies that portrayed mm-hmm. surrogacy as uh, a little bit different. I didn't understand that you could be a surrogate and not use your own egg. Mm-hmm. So that's the difference between sometimes what people believe surrogacy is and what a gestational surrogacy is. Mm-hmm. So gestational surrogacy is the, the egg from a mom or a donor and the sperm from a dad or a donor that's fertilized in a lab and grown to five, six days and then frozen until it can be transferred to a host uterus. So very interesting terminology. When I use the term gestational, that means that there's no DNA link. So I had no idea that that was even possible. So I was very excited when I found out that that could be done. Um, My husband wasn't really on board because he didn't understand the whole process. I did a lot of research between 2008 and 2010, and in that research, my heart just kept pulling me towards it. I I worked at an office job where I was seeing upwards of, you know, 150 to 200 people a day. So the more I would question them um, about, hey, have you heard about surrogacy? Do you know anything about surrogacy? And they'd be like, no, but my aunt could have used a surrogate, or I could have used a surrogate, or my sister, or and you start to hear people's stories. And mm-hmm. those stories can really touch your heart and really resonate with you. So with some education and some consistent conversation about surrogacy, my husband decided that he was on board, but he was worried about how I would react to having a baby that wasn't mine. So mm-hmm. we met our very first couple in 2010, and they were actually very close to us. So we got to meet them for coffee, and we had some discussions. I think our conversation ended up being about three hours long. When we walked out, my husband said, we weren't even two feet out the door. And my husband said to me, I couldn't imagine my life without my children. Do whatever you need to do. To wow. do this. If, if this is what you want to do. He's like, I can't. It actually brings me to tears just to even think about that conversation because... His support meant so much. I couldn't, of mm-hmm. course, do it without his support. So he had heard their story. It was quite painful. They couldn't have their own children. They had tried uh, multiple different issues going on. Or he was like, I, I could not imagine 
our life without our children. So, so that uh, opened up that opportunity for me to move forward with that couple. So I, I started um, doing the process of surrogacy in 2010 is when I started doing um, stuff to get ready. It's like, so I had met my first couple. I had done my psychological evaluation. I had to go to the clinic and do a complete screening, a complete physical screening. Um, at that point, I also had to have a letter from my doctor saying that I was approved. So the physical screening was a full day event, a couple of ultrasounds, I think about 17 vials of blood. They checked <laughs> for everything. Um, and then my husband and I had to do the psychological evaluation to make sure that we weren't, um, you know, doing it for the wrong reasons. And of course, being a surrogate in Canada, you're not allowed to be paid. Surrogacy in Canada mm-hmm. is altruistic. You can be reimbursed for your expenses, but you cannot be compensated. So um, it was a completely different world in 2010. And I was so excited to go into my very first transfer. My intended parent came to the transfer. My husband came to the transfer. I had to start taking medications on day two of my cycle. I had to go to back to Toronto uh, at about 10 days past my cycle start. And then they set my transfer day up five or six days later, and I had to start injections. And that was a whole new thing for me. My husband had to give me all of my injections because I could not do it myself. And then transfer day came and it was so interesting because I walked into the clinic and they have a different suite for, for transfers. You walk in, it's quiet relaxing they have massage chairs the mom was able to come in with me she was able to come in for the procedure and the procedure was so fast it was literally like less than five minutes it was like they showed me the embryo on the screen and they you know inserted it through a catheter into my uterus and then they're like okay have a great day see you in two weeks and hopefully you're pregnant. <laughs> uh, so it was like all of this adrenaline had built up for this moment and then the moment was gone I was like oh gosh <laughs> So, um, you know, that story doesn't end with a happy ending. Unfortunately, I did go through four transfers with that couple. And unfortunately, we did not get pregnant. And Mm. they decided to not continue their surrogacy journey after that. So that was an 18 month journey for me. Wow. And in the end, it didn't work. They did not Mm. end up having their baby. And it's it was really sad for me. It was, of course, very sad for them. They, They had to grieve their 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 process and the loss of not being able to have children. But I learned so much about myself. I learned so much about um, the world of fertility. I had researched literally every smallest little detail I could find to help me get pregnant with their baby. Mm -hmm. Um, But sometimes it just doesn't happen. And that's the world of fertility. It's full of heartbreak. And at that time, how did you find that couple? Actually, I had gone through a different agency. I had seen like a quick ad on Kijiji or something maybe. Uh, And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And and it's interesting, you know, I firmly believe that the universe gives you signs. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I had already looked into this. And then one day that sign was there saying, hey, we're looking for moms that might be interested in being surrogates. So I actually had met them through that different agency. Okay, so you still went through an agency. I did still go through an agency. Unfortunately, in 2010, you know, Facebook was still fairly new. You know, now it's much easier to find intended parents because people are talking about fertility now and there are specific groups in Canada. Mm -hmm. I'm actually an admin of one of the independent surrogacy groups in Canada where people do match independently. So So. that's interesting to know that it doesn't work every time. Mm-hmm. We had moved on to another another um, single mom after that because I was so bound, bent, and determined at this point that I was going to be a surrogate for somebody. Yeah. And, and that transfer failed as well. And then wow. I decided that maybe it wasn't for me. Maybe the universe had given me the 
sign and I had taken it the wrong way. Maybe I needed a surrogate. <laughs> I didn't understand why I couldn't get pregnant when mm-hmm. I had had no issues getting pregnant on my own. It turns out that the majority of transfers that fail, it's it's 90, I think they say it's about 98, 99% embryo quality where the embryo just stops developing at some point because I actually ended up getting pregnant. Uh, I took a break. I took a long break. I reevaluated and I was still being pulled. I was, my heart was still drawn to it. Uh, so I actually decided to seek out a different agency and found a, a different couple. I did a little bit more research into the embryo quality and what I was looking for. There is ways that the embryos can be tested for certain chromosomal abnormalities. Not everything is tested, but I mean, it's a five-day-old embryo. They don't know what's going on. But um, I had chosen the parents. I had chosen a set of parents that had tested their embryos to uh, try to give everybody a little bit more opportunity for success. And this is also like, if it's happened in surrogacy, it's happened to me. So the day I went for my transfer with this couple... The doctor decided very last minute that he wanted to transfer three embryos because the quality was very poor and my history uh, with failed transfers was, I had gone over for weight. So he told me just maybe an hour before my transfer, it only takes about an hour to 90 minutes to thaw embryos. So about an hour, he's like, well, they're not thawing very well. So we'd like to transfer all of them. There's about a 20% chance that you'll get pregnant with one because the embryos are really poor quality. They're really not doing well. And I was so desperate for success. I was so desperate for these parents. I wanted them to have a baby. Uh, like I was committed. That at this point, I had been on my journey for, you know, two and a half to three years. And I was like, wow. I need these people to have their baby. Uh, if it doesn't work this time, I, this is it. I'm done. I can't do it. So yeah. I agreed. And I agreed under a little bit of duress. I knew that in my heart, I probably wasn't making the right decision for myself. But I did it. I signed. Of course, I'm go- I want to do everything I possibly can to help these parents become parents. Mm-hmm. And I transferred three embryos. And then at six weeks, we found out I was pregnant with triplets. Wow. So, oh yes. my. so the stats were incorrect or inaccurate, whatever they might be. But I also learned at that point that a thawing embryo can just take off growth at any point in time or just stop developing at any point in time there's no way to tell how that embryo is going to continue to develop and all three of them decided that they were going to stick around and I was pregnant with triplets and so this couple went from wanting a child to having three they ended up with two Um, another part of the dark the dark surrogacy world is termination and selective reduction so at that point, the parents did not want me to carry triplets. They wanted me to have a selective reduction. And just for terms of clarity, selective reductions can be done in any multiple pregnancy, but they are not done until you're 14 to 16 weeks. So I had a very hard time with that. I am, again, not understanding in entirety what mm-hmm. I had agreed to, but mm-hmm. I, I had agreed to it. I had agreed that if I was pregnant with two or more babies, I would have a selective reduction. So I ended up having to go to Sunnybrook and speak with doctors there. I was very fortunate that I didn't have to go through the process. The process of selective reduction to me is not, doesn't sound very pleasant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll leave that to your, to your listeners to find their research. But I was very fortunate when we were getting ready for the selective reduction process. One of the triplets actually had passed on his own at 13 weeks. So that saved me having to go through the process. I was heartbroken for that baby, but 
at the same time, the risk to the pregnancy was lessened because I didn't have to go through a procedure to reduce them. So I did deliver full-term twins at 38 weeks. Um, and it, my pregnancy was noted as a twin pregnancy with a triplet demise. So it was also wow. my very first C-section. I had never had a C-section before, but I never went into labor. Those babies uh, hung on for every possible moment they could <laughs> in, in utero. When I went into into the hospital for my C-section, I was 38 weeks in one day, and those babies were super snug and breech. So, <laughs> that oh was my no gosh, yeah. You know yes. what? This is interesting. It's so interesting listening to you because you have so much history with giving birth. For anyone that's giving birth to their first child or their second child you know a lot about this because you've gone through different ways, different experiences, scenarios. Wow. Words of wisdom from a very experienced birthing <laughs> mother. Well, I'm happy to share at any time. So that was, uh, you know, my first successful journey took four years to birth. Uh, those twins were born in 2014. So that tells you, you know, if your journey isn't successful on the first try, you can stay with it. You can be committed to it um, if it's in your heart to do it. but you know, sometimes we're not successful and sometimes we're extremely successful and, you know, we're able to, to build that family. So, um, so yeah, that was my, my first journey per se was four years long. Mm. I wanted to mention the process of uh, the harvesting and hmm. getting the eggs because there's two different ways of becoming pregnant as a surrogate. Like you said, one point that uh, I wanted to talk about are some misconceptions we hear about and we always think that if you're a surrogate, then the child is half of you because right. it, it came out of you. So it's your genes, your DNA. But most people, do they use egg donor? Like you take it from a egg bank or how does that work? So you, in Canada, you have a few options. If you are um, a female and male couple, you can harvest your own eggs and you can have the sperm come from your spouse or who, your partner. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then that's fertilized and kept in the freezer. So the process of retrieval can be, it can be very hard on the female body. It, you, they're pushing your body to mature as many eggs as possible in, in trying to, rec you know, recoup. We're, our bodies are only made to produce one egg a month, sometimes two. So an egg retrieval forces the women's body into retrieving more than one egg. Um, and that process requires going under anesthesia and having an invasive medical procedure done. So, yes, it's 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 still uh, very I would like to I don't like to use the word traumatic, but it can be very invasive for um, to retrieve an egg. So I think that's also important to understand that when um, when a female is going through fertility issues and she can't get pregnant on her own and she has to go through an egg retrieval process, that process is not an easy process as, as well to manage physically. So you can use your own eggs. You can use an egg donor. Canada actually has a few different egg donor programs. Uh, there's one in Ottawa, Fertility Match. There's one, um, I think, in southern Ontario. I think they're Little Miracles. And then there's another one located. Their head office, I do believe, is out west, and that is Egg Helpers. And these companies are specialists in egg donation. So they are finding people who would like to donate their eggs that have a good health history, that will pass um, all of the genetic profiles. You have to have a specific genetic profile to be an egg donor. You have to have a good family history, all those things that come into play. But if you aren't able to use your own eggs, you do have the option of using an egg donor in Canada. So Canada 
does have these options available as well. When it comes to sperm donation, it's not quite as robust. We don't have a lot of sperm donors in Canada. I do believe the quote was 90% of the sperm used in Canada comes from the U.S. Because oh, really? the regulations around sperm donation in Canada are quite strict. And there's actually only one sperm bank left in Canada. When the new regulations came out in 2004, I believe, it caused uh, a lot of the sperm banks to shut down. So there's, there's one in Toronto. Sarah Cohen is a fertility specialist in Toronto. She's a lawyer. And I do believe her stats state that 90% of the sperm comes from the States. Speaking of the States, you can also purchase your eggs from the States. If you can't find a suitable Canadian donor that matches everything that you're looking for, you do have the option to go to a U.S. egg bank and you can purchase eggs from an egg bank in the States and have them shipped to your clinic in Canada. So mm-hmm. when a parent is choosing an egg donor through through any agency or egg bank, they are allowed to see photos and all of the testing, all of the characteristics, how many births does that, that woman already have, and how many donations does that woman already have, how many live births have come from her donations. All of those statistics are given to parents when they are choosing their donor. Um, a lot of donors are very young. There was a point where you couldn't be over the age of I think 25 and be a donor, but most clinics have increased their age to 32. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many women, when they think, geez, I could be a donor, I could be an egg donor, many of us are too old for it. You know, at 35, I had already aged out of being an egg donor, but I could still be a surrogate. Wow. And what's the reason just for health? I think it's all statistics. I think it's based on, um, you know, the fertility health of the general average woman. Um, You know, we generally go into menopause in our 50s or 60s. Our egg quality tends to diminish. That's why they say if you get pregnant over the age of 40, that they, you know, there's a higher risk of um, chromosomal abnormalities. So sometimes you have a little bit more testing done. I don't know what the specific statistics are. And even if they're true anymore, I don't know, because I think that the general health of the average person is, um, you know, the average person that's trying to get pregnant. I would like to think that they're somewhat healthy, but it's interesting Mm -hmm. to know that your general health doesn't have any effect on your fertility health. Hmm. So your eggs could, could age, your eggs could age out at, you know, 38. And I think we were, you know, in a, in an era where a lot of, women uh, had the opportunity to have some amazing careers and maybe they didn't find the right partners. So, you know, later in life, they get married. I say later in life. I say, I mean, like in their thirties, which is not mm-hmm. late in life at all. Uh, <laughs> not anymore. Not anymore. And it should be, you know, super exciting to start your family. So, you know, you've got all these wonderful things ahead of you, but you don't realize that you even have fertility issues until you start trying to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that um, some women are forced into that category of being what, what they like to call geriatric maternal age. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's my favorite. Uh, every time I get pregnant, they call me geriatric. They call it a geriatric pregnancy because I'm super old. I'm really <laughs> not. But yeah, so, so a lot of women um, will find out in their mid-30s that they have fertility issues. And now the, t- now the clock is against them. Now they must go through all of these treatments or they have to harvest their eggs super fast. They have to go through whatever process they need to go through to, to retrieve their eggs before they expire, for lack of a better term. Um, you know, your biological clock is ticking. And as you age your ovaries don't release as many. So even at 40, as an egg donor, you know, they would check my ovaries before donation. And I would have, as if I was 30, I might have 15 to 17 follicles ready to release an egg, where at 40, I might only have two or three. Hmm. 
So it's interesting that, um, you know, as healthy as we could be on the outside and take care of ourselves and exercise and eat well, the fertility health has no bearing. Like your, your uh, eggs and ovaries will age. Apparently they age out. So they go into retirement mode apparently at about 35. I don't know how true that is. But uh, like I know women that have gotten successfully pregnant after 40, um, you know, and, and had perfectly healthy babies. I don't know if I should be talking about statistics, but I know that if you're looking for an egg donor, if you're trying to retrieve your own eggs, the clinics will tell you that you will have more success with a younger donor or with younger eggs. Wow. That's very interesting to know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I know someone, she's single and she wants to start a family eventually, but she's in her 30s and had people telling her maybe she should start thinking of freezing her eggs because... You never know if they're going to be good if you finally decide to start a family or if you meet someone. And It's true. So that would be a good idea. They do suggest that um, I know I've had friends also that in their 30s, they haven't found the partner that they want to have children with. And they're like, why don't you? I can get pregnant in my 40s and I'll be fine. But will my egg health be okay in my 40s? I'm not sure. Um, Mm. And it's, you know, most of the time, when you're trying to conceive, the doctors won't even refer you to a specialist until you've been trying to conceive for a year or two. So you could be putting yourself even a year or two behind. Yeah. Um, by not be, and that's just the way the system works. It's just, they say, you know, it can take a year to get pregnant, depending on your previous um, birth control methods. Like if you've had an IUD, it might take you longer. An IUD for a number of years, because that can affect your lining. If you've been on birth control, that can affect how long it takes for you to to be able to conceive. So all those factors in place, sometimes you don't get a referral to a specialist, to a fertility specialist until you've been trying to conceive for over a year. There's one thing you haven't um, really mentioned, and I'm I'm very curious. Well, you you talked about how if you're not using your own eggs, so the baby is not yours. But I I mean, I'm pregnant right now with my third. And and from all the mothers that have been pregnant, during that pregnancy, regardless if it's yours or not, you develop a certain connection with this unborn baby, you feel it move. Um, I mean, you get all these hormones. How was it for you after you gave birth, after you were giving birth? Or how was it, especially your first time? The baby is out. What happened? Yeah, the baby is here. Feel? What happens now? Well, first I have to admit, um, I love being pregnant. It's one of the most amazing things I have ever been through in my life. I love being pregnant. I love feeling the baby move. I love the kicks and the, the flutters and all those exciting things. Um, so, And that's another reason why I did so many pregnancies, because I do love being pregnant. If you don't mind for this question, I'm actually going to touch on all of my journeys, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, because my first journey did not end well. Mm-hmm. My my first journey, uh, the relationship during the pregnancy was what I thought was fine. Um, I didn't realize until after the fact that I actually had been, and, and, and I'm just going to put this out there. Like I didn't have a lot of guidance through the agency I was working with. They offered me no guidance and no support. Um, so I just thought this was the way it was. Mm-hmm. And in the end, the journey, once those babies were born, the parents were pretty much done with me. They did not want to have any more relationship with me, even though during the pregnancy, 
we had developed what I thought was a good friendship. They had been introduced to my children. We did weekly visits. We, we thought, I thought we had an authentic friendship that had developed organically. I was mistaken after babies were born. So that was a tough end to the journey for me because I didn't have the closure that uh, I thought I needed. And I didn't have the best experience with the parents afterwards. It was, uh, it was very standoffish. They were not, again, I found out after the fact that they had, um, you know, the whole relationship was a facade and they were only in it for the, to get the baby and, and, and didn't want anything to do with me after the fact. So that's fine. But I didn't want that to be how my surrogacy journey ended because I had been part of these amazing support groups that had reported back, like surrogates have reported back so many amazing things about their journeys and that they had ongoing relationships with the parents, um, that they were truly friends. So I thought, damn, like, how did this happen to me? What did I do wrong? Um, you know, how can I correct this? And can I do this again? What happens if it goes wrong again? So I did decide to do a second journey and I went into it with a complete transparency. Like this is what I want from this journey. I want to have a relationship with people, and I think that's something that you have to set in your mind ahead of time. It's not your baby. So you're, you have no decision making once the baby's born, you know, and you need to be able to be okay with that. So fast forward, good relationship through the pregnancy. Um, the intended parents were uh, a same sex couple. They were fabulous through the whole pregnancy. They ensured that they were checking in with me all the time. Baby decided to show up two weeks early. So it was like a race to the hospital because he was in Toronto and had to come to where I live. So he was about a two hour drive in an ice storm, but he made it and he got to be there when his baby was born. And I got to see his face when his baby was born. And that sealed any doubts I had about how I would feel after this specific journey. It basically, like my heart exploded. I was so happy for them. They were so excited. Like everything that they had been doing for the last 10 years has finally come to fruition. They have a baby and their family is complete. They only wanted one baby. Um, this is what surrogacy brought to them. So seeing that, seeing his appreciation, seeing how much he loved that baby, I actually didn't feel like I had a loss. I didn't grieve that I didn't have a baby, the relationship that you build through the surrogacy is with the parents, not with the baby, right? So you do develop a bit of a bond with baby. We all do when we're pregnant, you know, especially if you love being pregnant. But I used to talk, talk to my belly all the time and be like, hey, your dad this or your mom this or, you know, whatever the baby's name might have been. I'd be like, hey, you know, they're looking forward to meeting you. So I would talk to the baby like I knew it wasn't mine. But I still love that baby. Like, I still love all of my surrogate babies. They are, but I don't feel like I lost anything. I feel like for the most part, um, like for the next three journeys, I gained family out of all of them. They still stay in contact. I get pictures all the time. We have visitations. One of them, I go see them once a year for about a week. We stay with them um, in the summertime. So the relationships that you build can definitely take away the thoughts of any loss that you might have. Of course, you go through an emotional thing after the baby's born. Your body is purging all these hormones. You have to take care of yourself. You have to make sure that you've got a good support system around. You're going to cry. I cried all the time. Like, but I didn't cry because I didn't have a baby. I just cried because my body was a disaster and my emotions were all over the place. And my body was trying to purge all these pregnancy hormones. But I never felt like I was in a loss position, if that makes any sense at all. Like, I think understanding that you have created another branch on somebody's family tree 
understanding how much they appreciate that, understanding you know, how much they love that little human being and they have wanted for that human being for so long to be in their life. I think that really overtakes any sort of negative experience that you might have. Wow. That's so fascinating. Um, I have two follow-up questions to what you just shared. What happened with the milk that comes in? Do you actually feed the baby those first hours at the hospital? Like how quickly do they take the baby and give it to the parents and Okay. Well, that's a great question. Yeah. So If the parents are in the hospital with you, they get custody of the baby immediately. And that is written into your agreement that okay. um, that they take custody of the baby right upon birth because then it's his, his, his own person. Um, it's up to you and your intended parents if you want to breastfeed, if you want to pump, if you want to do both. For my first journey, I did pump for a couple of weeks. I, I stopped after two weeks because, of, of course, that relationship went poorly. But the next baby, they wanted me to breastfeed the baby in the hospital. And then they wanted me to continue to pump them if I if I would. And every time I saw them, I would breastfeed the baby. They would ask me to breastfeed the baby. Um, the next journey was that it was very much the same. The the parents had asked that I feed the baby if I could in the hospital and pump as well. And the last journey, I actually didn't feed the baby at all. I pumped a little bit of colostrum for the baby, but um, mom had actually induced her own lactation and was doing that. Uh, so she didn't require the the additional milk. So I actually just let my milk dry up. Mm. There's so many different options. Like it depends on the parent's comfort level. Um, it depends on the surrogate's comfort level. Sometimes people don't want anything to do with it. Just dry up the milk and take your baby. Um, sometimes you only pump. Sometimes you might just only breastfeed in the hospital to get the best of the colostrum. It's, uh, it's definitely an individual choice. Mm -hmm. Legally, of course, there's lawyers involved, there's the agency, there's all the contracts. So are these terms, um, how quickly the parents take the baby, the communication following the birth, what's included in the contract? So every contract in regards to custody of baby upon birth is very specific. Once that baby is born, that baby does belong to its parents intentionally and as soon as legal proceedings can be taken depending on what province you're in because every province has different regulations as to what the parents have to do to have the parentage turned over and have the birth certificates put into their names but uh, that's very specific so babies once like as soon as they are born those babies are and i don't like to use the word custody because it sounds aggressive yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but they, they do go into, they become the responsibility of their parents immediately. I guess that's a better way to put it. And the surrogate um, is not to be making any medical decisions or, or anything like that. Like usually the baby doesn't even stay with the surrogate. Usually the baby upon birth goes right to the parents. If the parents are there, they're able to do, uh, many hospitals will allow the parents to be in the room. Of course, if the surrogates agree and they can do skin to skin immediately. They can start their bonding mm. process with their babies immediately um, as long as everything is well. And sometimes they leave the hospital within a few hours and sometimes they are assigned their own room at the hospital and they get that opportunity to be with the baby while the surrogate has her own private room to heal. Mm. 
And what about during the pregnancy? How much involvement or who gets to decide, like, let's say, what type of food you're eating, if they have a specific oh, diet? <laughs> uh-huh. I'm taking this from movies, you know? No, that's okay. You're, you, I'm um, so glad that you're asking because these things are uh, big misconceptions, right? So, yes. So yes, the contract does address things that you should not ingest. There's plenty of things that pregnant women should not ingest for the safety of themselves and for the safety of the pregnancy. Uh, so those things are addressed in in the contracts. You have things that have been known to cause any sort of birth defect, that's going to be in your contract, that mm-hmm. you can't take anything like that. When it comes to food, now, my very first experience, they the intended parents did try to dictate what I would and wouldn't eat. And having been pregnant four times already in my life, I was like, mm, no, because I know that I might only eat ice cream that day. <laughs> like, I don't know. I might, eat, I might eat gummy bears for dinner. I don't know what's going to go on. Um, <laughs> so I was, I was, I was almost offended. I, well, I guess I was, I was very standoffish about it. I was like, no, you can't dictate to me what I'm going to put into my body if in relation to food. And as long as it's safe, as long as it's a pregnancy safe thing. So a lot of the legal experts in Canada now will put into the legal contract that the surrogate will follow the Canadian food guidelines for pregnant women. And mm-hmm. that we won't ingest those things that we shouldn't, like things that are higher in mercury or unpasteurized things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you want an exemption to that, it has to be something like, okay, so you've always had unpasteurized goat's milk. It's something that you've always had in your diet. So it's not going to harm you to put, to continue with that through your pregnancy. Uh, but if it's something like you've never had unpasteurized goat's milk and you want to dictate that you're, you should be allowed to drink it all of a sudden, then it's not going to pass, right? Because like, you're putting yourself at risk in the pregnancy. Okay. Risk. So if these intended parents, if they don't automatically no. dictate what so they want many, you to do or not no, to do or how no. much exercise and all these specifics. So many intended parents are so grateful to find a surrogate because surrogates are not in a, in large supply in Canada. They are in short supply. So if, if they find a surrogate that's willing to carry for them, stay healthy, eat food, drink water, you know, those sorts of things, you know, and, and take care of their baby for 40 weeks, they're generally not very demanding when it comes to to dietary restrictions. Okay. We do have some parents that, you know, maybe their religion or their culture requires that they eat a certain way. So they will ask before they're matched to find a surrogate that could conform to those sort of eating habits, eating styles. Um, and some of the surrogates are more than happy to do that. They're more than happy to eat a kosher diet or a vegan diet or organic diet based on the needs of the parents, but it's not forced upon them. They are agreeing on these terms before they even match, before they even make an agreement to work together. They're working those details out. So it's not a surprise when the day you get pregnant that you have to eat only a kosher diet. And of course, the intended parents are also very willing to take up those costs. You know, those sorts of uh, things cannot, sometimes they don't mesh with a budget that a family might be on. So the intended parents do pick up that additional fees if the surrogate is agreeable to to doing that. But mm-hmm. again, um, it's something that's agreed upon between the parties well ahead of time. It's But it's very rare for me to see an intended parent demanding a dietary or physical requirements for a surrogate. They're usually just so happy to find somebody to help them. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about um, there's this ideal candidate to become a surrogate mother. So can you uh, list a few of them for a woman listening that might be interested maybe in doing this? So what are some of these um, specific? 
Sure. Um, so in Canada, so Canadian agency, we work with Canadian clinics and American clinics. And all of those clinics have different requirements. But the general rule is that you're in good physical health, uh, that your BMI would be 35 or lower as, a, as an average. There are clinics that go up to 40. There are clinics that stop at 28. It just depends on kind of uh, where you fall into that. Uh, but 35 is, is a generally good BMI to be at, to be approved. Um, clinics will accept surrogates up to 48 years old with good reproductive health as long as they've had one full-term healthy pregnancy. Mm-hmm. They, they'll approve. We have surrogates that have had multiple pregnancies and maybe their second or third pregnancy ended prematurely, but they've had a full-term pregnancy since. Then they'll be approved. They have to be, um, think, how do I put this out there where it's not, I don't want to say that uh, you have to be in good mental health because you can have a history of depression. You can have a history of other issues, but as long as you're in good mental health now, do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like as long yeah. as uh, you can pass the psychological evaluation because you will be, have to do a psychological evaluation. If you have a partner, your partner will also have to do a psychological evaluation with you and potentially individually. Non-smoking, that is extremely important. If you are a current smoker and you're able to quit, you have to be quit for, I do believe it is 90 days for most clinics before mm-hmm. they will consider doing your screening. Um I have a lot of women that come to me that ask questions about their own children and the genetics and, you know, can they still be a surrogate if their child has a genetic issue? And of course you still can be because you're not using your genetics. So mm-hmm. your children's genetic history actually doesn't play part. So if you have children that might be special needs, you can still be a surrogate because that's not going to fall into your requirements. No drinking while you're pregnant. Of course, you have to be able to make that commitment. No drugs, no CBD those things are not um, allowed in pregnancy, of course, but you also have to abstain from them previous to your screening for 30-ish days. It depends, too, on what province you're in. Many provinces have mm-hmm. restrictions on surrogate pregnancies, um, not so much the pregnancies, but the parentage. So how a parent will get the parentage of their children is really dependent on where their child is born. So very interesting that Quebec is actually not considered a surrogate-friendly province because... Mm. Yes. So a baby born to a surrogate in Quebec, and if the parents are not Quebec residents, it can cause some chaos in getting their parentage. Every province has its own restrictions. Um, If you are in Manitoba, you need to be single and never married because Manitoba has laws that don't allow for uh, parentage. If you're married, uh, your husband's name has to go on the birth certificate or Something along those lines. We don't. We don't actually have any Manitoba surrogates, so we don't actually deal with this specifically. But um, but even in there, are some provinces that require a genetic link. So if you have an egg donor and a sperm donor, you can't have your baby born in New Brunswick. You know those sorts of things. So um, oh my, yeah. So there's a lot of legalities uh, to the parentage, but to be a surrogate, um, you just generally have to be healthy. You have to be under the age of 48. Um, you have to have at least one full term pregnancy under your belt you have to be stable financially um like you don't have to own anything you don't have to own your own home you don't have to you know you can work from home you can be a stay-at-home mom you could be a military wife you could you could be doing whatever you want with your life um as long as it's suitable to be carrying a pregnancy for somebody else you can pass a psychological evaluation you have the support of the people that uh, you know, you're going to surround yourself with, um, and you're in good general health, not smoking, all of those factors come into play. 
And then we would just basically look at where you're from and we would choose intended parents that suited that provincial regulation. Mm. And what about one of the misconceptions that a lot of surrogate mothers are young women that needs money or low income earners? Oh, I know. That's terrible. <laughs> it really is. It's, it, it, it's uh, in some it's countries it's like that. I've been yes. reading in like India with the COVID nineteen um, articles. Have been saying how a lot of women need money, so they're yes. becoming surrogates. But in Canada, I'm thinking it's not the case. It's not. It's it's so different because the world that we are exposed to through the media, uh, generally the only stories we hear are the bad stories. Um, so there, you know, surrogacy in Thailand, which has now been banned surrogacy in Mexico, where intended parents were stuck um, in Mexico and couldn't get their babies out. Even Canadian parents going to Mexico for surrogacy and being stuck there for months on end, not being able to get their babies out of Mexico. Right now, because of COVID, there's a huge issue in Ukraine. I just watched a YouTube video for a couple where the dad had to go to the Ukraine and he had to literally beg, borrow and steal his way there to get into the country. And he's been there for eight weeks with his newborn daughter trying to get home to his wife. Wow. Like it's, Those are the stories we hear about and they're heartbreaking and horrible. Like your heart, it feels so bad yeah. for these people. In India, surrogacy is a commercial industry. Women are not treated very well as surrogates. They are You know, in Canada, we have a healthcare system that is built to take care of us. So we know that the health of a Canadian citizen is going to be better than one in India. We know that we're going to be looked after a little bit better here. Um, mm -hmm. But we don't hear about Canadian surrogacy stories because they're not bad, right? So they don't make the media because they're not terrible stories. <laughs> And I think that's I think that's the issue that we run into is, is, you know, I have plenty of surrogates that are got nurses that are employed full time. They make a very good living um, and they're surrogates because they want to be like we don't if, we don't discriminate if you're making twenty thousand dollars a year. Or if you're making one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year, mm -hmm. we have people at all ends of the spectrum with our agency. It's an unfortunate stereotype misconception that people become surrogates because they need the financial gain, which is not always the case, right? Like I would say that the large majority of the people that we hear from that are interested in being surrogates are interested in being surrogates because they want to be helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's definitely a misconception, but I think that that's what it is. I think we don't hear enough of the good stories. We don't hear enough of, the good surrogacy endings. We don't hear enough of the nurses, the office managers, the city workers, you know, the, all these people that like I was an office manager for 10 years. And through my surrogacy journeys, I made decent money. I didn't need money. I didn't need to have my expenses covered for certain things, but I wanted to do this. So, you know, it, I didn't go into it thinking I was going to be compensated because I knew I couldn't. And I think that once you get those people There are people still in it that we hear from that think that they're going to get paid for being a surrogate. And we just gently educate them that that's not a thing in Canada. You can't be compensated. You know, might be going back to school and they're full-time students and they do a surrogacy during their university career. And managers of, of different sorts, human resource managers, we have them all. Since you, you started talking about the financial aspect, and one question that came to mind because I didn't know until I prep for this interview that it was illegal to pay a surrogate, but you could be reimbursed for pregnancy-related expenses. So in my mind, I'm thinking, why would someone do it? 
first of all, they're not keeping the baby and knowing all of the hormones and how you're feeling. And, and then you have to take some time off and appointments and all of that. You enjoyed being pregnant and you love helping someone else. Financially, are there any benefits of doing it? So this is what separates a lot of people out of the surrogacy world. And it also, this is where people are commonly misguided about, you know, how surrogacy works in Canada. And mm-hmm. why would you become a surrogate? Why on earth would you put yourself through that if you're not making $50,000, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we just actually had new guidelines laid out by Health Canada in June. We've been preparing for them for about 12 months in regards to reimbursement guidelines for surrogate mothers. And they've actually opened up the guidelines. You can actually be reimbursed for a little bit more. So the general reimbursement for a pregnancy can be anywhere between twenty dollars and $30,000 giving exception for lost wages your you know your wage replacement is is covered for any appointments that you might have to attend if you're traveling so we do have surrogates that will travel to the state not right now of course but those expenses would be covered 100% as well as your lost wages so if you had to travel to the states for a transfer you could be gone for 3 or 4 days so all of that stuff is covered off in those numbers um, your communication costs, if you're talking on your phone and if you have long distance charges, a portion of that is covered, a portion of your groceries are covered. So whatever you intake, you know, and you're, you just don't feel like cooking. Like if you've been pregnant three times, you know, morning sickness can be mm-hmm. quite debilitating. You generally don't, might not want to cook. And if you're a single mom or even a mom that has a husband that can't cook, you like <laughs> order pizza, pet sitting, uh, childcare for your appointments, mileage so if you have to drive anywhere to pick anything up that's pregnancy related anything if you have to go to an appointment in toronto like so i I do spend a lot of time i worked with toronto clinics a couple of times so i would drive you know 200 kilometers there 200 kilometers back so that mileage is covered you can't be paid for gas you're paid for mileage under the cra rates uh which is also written into your contract uh chiropractic care massage therapy all of those therapeutic benefits they are covered uh, there's there's a large array and assortment of expenses that are covered. So you're never out of pocket to be pregnant. Mm. And and to be completely fair and honest and transparent, the intended parents are covering a portion of your grocery bill. That's a portion that you're going to spend anyway because you have to eat. So mm-hmm. you could potentially take that two or three hundred dollars a month and that's that's something that's coming back to you and you can do whatever you want with it. Um But it's not anything to write home about. It's not anything you're going to retire on. But you have to spend the money to be reimbursed. You have to provide receipts in Canada. You have to provide itemized receipts. And you have to declare all of your receipts that they are accurate, that they are within your contract. Um, All of these things come into play. So you may not get a huge financial gain out of it. But, I mean, you might come out ahead a little bit. But you're not going to come out enough to take a month off of work. Like you... When you go on maternity leave, if you choose to take a maternity leave, you have to go on unemployment insurance if that's written into your contract. Um, Mm -hmm. So you will you will be covered for up to 55 percent of your income through unemployment. But your intended parents cover off the other 45 percent while you're off. Okay, so if you're going through an agency, do you have a monthly expense budget? Is this how it works? So I can speak to how my agency operates. Mm-hmm. Um, any, even independently, if you match without an agency, the agreements are drawn up to be very standard in regards to a monthly reimbursement amount. Um, and many of them will address and say, okay, so if you don't use this 
this amount on this month to say, say let's say your amount is $1,000 a month and this month you only claim $500. Well, going forward, you could take that other $500 and carry it forward if you need to, because sometimes mm-hmm. you might have more expenses up the road. But that's in every agreement. It's not agency specific. So with our agency, uh, we have a third party that is in charge of reimbursement receipts. And she is very good and very diligent. And the surrogates will send their receipts to her through an app. They will send the report to the accountant. The accountant gets a picture of all of the receipts and all of the report. And she will break it down for them and tell them what's reimbursable within their contract and what's not. So every contract is independent. Yeah. So every contract is independent when it comes to uh, what you can claim. So for me, if I was to be a surrogate again right now, I wouldn't specifically need childcare because my children are older. My, my youngest is 15. But other people have young children. If they need bed rest, if they need the additional time, you know, their, their daycare fees are all covered So uh, for pregnancy related. So it's not like you're taking your kids to daycare every day like you normally would if you were employed you will still be responsible for those costs. But if you need additional daycare, say you need a night sitter to come in or a night nanny to come in because you're so sick or exhausted Mm -hmm. or you're having issues that you might need bed rest for, then those expenses are all covered. So you never have to worry about being out of pocket. Okay. You mentioned maternity leave. So how does that work? Is there a specific amount of weeks surrogate mother is allowed compared to the other mothers? Uh, Great question. That is a a great and valid question. So in Canada, you can get up to two years now covered off on unemployment insurance. But if you're a surrogate, you're only eligible for the maternity leave portion, which is 17 weeks. So you can take your 17-week maternity leave. If you want, you can take the whole thing. You can take two weeks. You can take do whatever you want with it. It's entirely up to you. Generally speaking, for surrogate agreements between the intended parents and the surrogates, when we're talking about postpartum reimbursements, because you are eligible post-baby for reimbursement still. You're still eligible for all of those things. And you, you want to rest and take care and recuperate. So sometimes the surrogates will negotiate a four, six, eight weeks, depending on what they, they think they might need. So the intended parents are not reimbursing the full 17 weeks up to 100%. They're only reimbursing usually up to six weeks. That's a general guideline um, where, they, where they will reimburse the additional 45%. So the intended parents are paying the costs of pretty much all of it. For someone that might need this service along down the road, like maybe they're in same-sex partnership or they're single or for whichever reason they can't get pregnant the traditional way, if you kind of average everything out, how much upfront would that number look like? Yeah, we, we would estimate 60 to 90, depending on donors, and that includes your egg donorship, depending on your lawyers and how much they charge, depending on what province you're in, um, what you need to do for parentage. Sometimes in Ontario, Ontario has an amazing parentage system for intended parents. Basically, the surrogate signs a declaration at seven days post-birth saying this baby is not mine. It was a surrogacy agreement. Um, if I need to provide the surrogacy agreement, that's no problem. And the intended parents get that paperwork. They send it into the registrar and then they are the parents of their baby. They, they get their birth certificate. They get all of the um, Ontario health card information. It's a fantastic process. Uh, that's just been implemented for the last few years. Previously, 
intended parents, even Ontario parents, had to go through a court process where they had to, I had to sign affidavits to be notarized by a lawyer. So there's a cost there. Their lawyer had to prepare the documents and courier them to me. There's a cost there. I had to courier the documents back. There's a cost there. So the lawyer has to appear in person to the judge to go over all the documents. And that's a couple hours worth of fees and paperwork. And so then you're looking at that. And then they have their, they, then they get their court order saying that they are the legal parents of these, this child. And then they have to send that paperwork off to the register. So the legal costs can be upwards of $20,000, depending on where you are, because you have to have your agreement drawn up with your surrogate ahead of time. So that cost can range from four to 6000 ish dollars. And then the surrogate is then represented by her own legal counsel, which for the agency, we will assign them a specialist. We work with all of the lawyers within Canada. They're all amazing. Um, and we will find somebody to work with them, but they're all specialists. So that lawyer will get the draft contract. Um, and you're required to have that. You are required to have a legal contract in place before the clinic will work with you mm-hmm. as a surrogate. So you don't have to accept the terms of your agreement as they're written. You can negotiate your terms out, and that's why you have individual legal representation. So independent legal advice is a requirement you know, just to start the process, those costs can can range from like six to $10,000. Mm-hmm. And that's all on the intended it's parent side. It's all on the intended parent side. And, and if they need a donor, if they need to use an egg donor, they'll also need a legal agreement with that egg donor. So there's there's lots of legalities involved um, yeah. that can drive up the price. The clinic costs are, are very high. I know you have to pay to freeze your embryos. You have to pay to make your embryos. You have to pay to fertilize your embryos. You have to pay to thaw your embryos. And then you have to pay to transfer your embryos. And on top of that, you're also paying for medication for your surrogate. Your surrogate requires very specific medication to sustain a pregnancy because we're not ovulating on our own. Our bodies don't produce that hormone that's required to sustain a pregnancy. Those can be between like probably four and $10,000. Wow. Do you deal with any intended parents uh, from the States? Because I know there's some uh, American listeners. I think the cost would be very similar for from Canada to the, to the U.S. I think the clinic costs and the legal costs are very similar. The compensated model in some of the U.S. states, now it's important to understand that not every U.S. state has a compensated model. Uh, some states have reimbursements, some states have compensation. Some states don't allow for surrogacy at all. So it really depends on where you are as well. I found an article, a Globe and Mail, um, just a couple years back, mentioning how Canada had become an international sur- surrogacy destination. Oh, the tourism. Uh, yes. <laughs> tourism. Uh, yes. Yes, because uh, it's saying that uh, Canada is one of the few countries left in the world that both allows sur- surrogacy and allows foreign participation in it. Anything you can tell us about that? Is it accurate? <laughs> um, it's hard. It's very hard sometimes for me to buy into the surrogacy tourism model because people believe that intended parents from the States, from France, from Spain, from Australia, wherever these intended parents are located, that they're getting a free baby. This is what the, the conception is. Mm-hmm. And it's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. They're not getting a free baby. They may not pay into our tax system for me to have my health care, but they sure put a lot out into the medical system and the legal system and the system where they have to stay after the baby's born. In the U.S., as a comparison, you can buy an insurance policy that will cover your surrogate. It will cover her OB costs. It will cover her 
midwife costs. It will cover the cost of delivery. It will cover off all of those things regarding pregnancy, um, provided it's a specific policy. In Canada, they don't offer that. They don't offer an intended parent the option to pay cash for things that are already covered. So that model is broken, and it's not something that the Canadian government or Health Canada or the insurance insurance industry is ready to address in Canada. So until they offer an intended parent from Australia or the U.S. that option to purchase insurance to pay for my medical care during my pregnancy, there's no solution. So until you have a solution in place or until you're talking about a solution, it's hard for me to accept <laughs> that article in, in, in its entirety. But when a baby is born in Canada, intended parents are required to pay for any fees regarding the baby. So if they, they have to pay for any care the baby needs after he or she is born. So if the baby needs um, any sort of NICU care, if the baby mm-hmm. needs a pediatrician, if the baby needs a nurse, if the baby needs um, immunizations, all of those things, the intended parents, if they're international, they have to pay those costs. If they are mm. inter- if they're interprovincial, the provincial system in where they reside will pick up the bill. Okay. The hospitals just have to coordinate with their medical care for that province. But there's also insurances available now for babies born to parents abroad. So we have a requirement with our agency that intended parents have to have this insurance insurance policy in place. They can purchase it. Um, I think it's a, it ranges from three to five thousand dollars for the policy, and that is policy that will cover the baby after the baby is born. So if the baby requires NICU care, say baby shows up eight weeks early, baby's covered. Those costs are covered by an insurance company. So that is a fairly new process. The parents have to purchase the policy two months minimum prior to their transfer. And it's in place for a minimum one year. The lawyers recommend that they purchase two years at a time. That way, if baby shows up early, baby's covered. And if they don't get pregnant on the first try, if it takes two or three tries, the insurance policy is still valid. Mm -hmm. So they just present that. They can either present it to the hospital upon birth or they can present the bills that they receive from the hospital to their insurance company and the insurance company will reimburse them. They're responsible to reimburse the hospital. Earlier in uh, during our conversation, you mentioned that there's not a lot of surrogate mothers. So what's the, how do you say, trend with surrogate mothers or intended parents to fill it, the demand? Yeah, it, it would be the demand of intended parents waiting. So I can only speak to my agency, but mm-hmm. I know that there's agencies that have wait lists of hundreds of intended parents. Wow. Um, the, the demand is high. And I think it's important to reiterate that these parents are looking for surrogates to build their families because they have no other choice. And I think that's Mm -hmm. another misconception that people maybe have, especially in Canada because of the media and the movies. People don't ask a surrogate to carry their baby because they don't want to wreck their waistline. That's not the way it works, right? Like there's there's a medical reason why they can't carry their own babies. Like so so it's all medical or inability. So if you have a same-sex male couple, of course they cannot carry a baby. Um, so yeah, so these people are all waiting for their surrogate because they absolutely need a surrogate mm-hmm. to build their families. So, you know, if you've got, I can't think off the top of my head right now, how many agencies are operating in Canada right now? There's, there's a few, there's less than there was a year ago, but more than there was five years ago. Um, even if I'd say, you know, we had five active, very good agencies that each had a hundred intended parents on their list, that's 500 intended parents that are still waiting. Mm-hmm. You know, my agency has 100 active cases right now, and that is 100 active cases 
meaning they've been matched. The surrogacy is in process. They are either screening, getting ready for a transfer, or pregnant. So we already have 100 cases that we're managing right now. We still have a list. Wow. We still have a wait list. So we are always looking for new surrogates. We are always looking for new qualified candidates. It's a challenge because you can't advertise for surrogates in Canada. That's true. Because it's it's a very gray area when it comes to advertising because you can't advertise human tissue. <laughs> you mm-hmm. can't you can't advertise it as a job because you're not paid. So it's it's hard to find that right uh, that good level of marketing to to hit the right group of people that could make good qualified candidates to be a surrogate. Like it's it's very hard to find really educating people on surrogacy. A lot of women, I'm very surprised, and probably because I've been involved in the surrogacy world for you know over 12 years now, um, I'm always surprised when a woman says to me, I would love to be a surrogate, but isn't it illegal? Mm-hmm. They, and they just don't know. It's, it's just, we're not educating enough. We need to put more education out there. And I think if we had more valid education as to what surrogacy is, people, or women that are like, oh, I couldn't give up my baby, but, but they don't understand that they don't have to use their own names. It's a completely different, um, completely different process. So we do need more surrogates. We do need more qualified candidates within Canada. And I think it's all about education because, you know, a lot of the women that have had children, you know, if they had a good pregnancy, if they had a mediocre pregnancy, understanding that they could help somebody to build their family, you know, that, that pulls at your heart and being compassionate, being empathetic. You know, being a mom and understanding how much a child can change a world is is what generally will draw people into surrogacy. Like maybe they're not ready to have another one of their own babies. They love being pregnant. Like me, I was done with my family, but I love being pregnant. So how did mm-hmm. I fill that need for myself and fill a need for somebody else? So we are always looking for good qualified candidates. And uh, I think every agency is. Our agency runs a little bit differently than most agencies. We do expect that the intended parents intend to have uh, a good relationship with the surrogates. There's no business transactions here. It's not like, okay, you have my baby. Now I'm done with you. Mm -hmm. Um, We foster those relationships. We love to watch them grow organically. We do have a lot of repeat surrogates. So that's nice. But one surrogate could be tied up for two or three years, depending on the process. Like my first journey, my first journey was three years of failure and then one year of success. So right now, is it word of mouth? Um, I would say a referral system. Yeah. Referral. Yeah, okay. I, yeah, I would definitely call it more of a referral system. I mean, we do what we can. Um, you know, I've got a big decal on the back of my truck. <laughs> it says surrogacy. Give the give the gift <laughs> of surrogacy. I drive my truck everywhere. It doesn't I don't care if I have to pay extra gas because I'm like I'm getting the word out there. Like surrogacy is legal. <laughs> um, <laughs> I take the opportunity to educate as many cashiers as I can. Anytime I have an appointment and people, I love the question. I had a dental appointment yesterday at a new dentist and they're like, okay, so how many, how many pregnancies have you had? And I was like, oh, this is a perfect opportunity for me to, you know, a perfect segue for me to start talking about surrogacy to the hygienist. Mm -hmm. And she was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. Mm -hmm. So possibly reiterate the positivity behind surrogacy. Surrogacy is an amazing and beautiful journey. It really is. My own life has been enriched. My children's lives have been enriched. Um, like it's it's just something I I'm so happy that I chose this path simply because I'm a different person than I was then, and I can't be sure of the person I would be now without all of these awesome things happening over the last few years. All of that constant joy and happiness and relationship building that is positive and rewarding, and my children got to be part of something super awesome four times. 
like they got to see the birth of the baby. They got to see, my one daughter was the birth photographer for one of for one of my births. She caught some amazing pictures of the intended parents watching their baby be born. So it's changed them. It's changed how they see the world. It's changed how they talk about things. My 15-year-old daughter knows more about the IVF and surrogacy laws in Canada than any other 15-year-old in Canada, <laughs> right? So, but they've also had, they have had good experiences. They have built relationships with these parents. They talk about it with their friends. They talk about surrogacy with their friends' parents. Um, you know, I've got, I've had other parents come to me and say, hey, I would love to be a surrogate. How did you do that? Tell me about it. Because they had mm -hmm. no idea. Mm -hmm. So. It's that word of mouth. It's talking about it positively. It's getting it out into the media in a positive manner. But it's also helping women to understand at any age that, you know, you only you have to be 21 years old in Canada to be a surrogate at minimum because you have to be able to enter into your legally binding contract. You have to have had a little bit of life experience. You know, you have to have had at least one pregnancy of your own. But 21 to 48 is a big gap. Like we can mm -hmm. educate all of those women um, about surrogacy and that it's legal and it's an amazing thing to do with your life. It, it truly is. I, I don't think I've met one surrogate that regretted being a surrogate. You talked about your kids, and I had one question about that yeah. because on your website, it said that when you're going through the process, and obviously kids, they see the belly growing, the first thing they think it's, oh, we're going to have a sibling. It mentioned how they need to know that what's going on. You have to be transparent. You have to be honest and clear about it. So what did you say to your kids the first time it actually worked? What did you tell them about what was happening and why you decided to do this? Because I'm sure they had questions. Yes. So my kids were a little bit older when I started. Um, my, my youngest would have been three when I started looking into it. So I, we had a different conversation with our three and five-year-old than we did with our 12-year-old. So I think children, children are so awesome. They are so welcoming and they mm -hmm. welcome change and they welcome awesome things into their lives. And when I told my three-year-old that we were going to have a baby for somebody else, she was like, great. <laughs> she just thought it was part of life, right? She just thought that's what people did. Um, and, and no different than explaining to my children, you know, same-sex marriage. They were like, great. I don't care. You love mm -hmm. somebody, love them. You know, like it, it was that sort of conversation with the younger ones. They just, they were just like, oh, that's cool. Because right off the bat, we're like, we're going to do this for another family. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to help these, this other couple create their family so they can have a child like, and a family like ours. And they were excited. They're like, that's great. It's awesome. Of course, they didn't know the nitty gritty behind it. I know my, when the first transfer failed, my, my younger daughter, my four-year-old daughter at the time, she was like, well, where's the baby? Like she didn't understand the, the process, of course, but I'm not going to sit down and explain the, the science to her. Whereas mm -hmm. my older boys, um, you know, you're like, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is how it's going to happen because they understand sexual reproduction at that point in their life. We've had those hard conversations with them. So them understanding that there was actual no sexual intimacy was very important to us mm -hmm. to, un to help them understand that, um, that there was all a scientific and doctor process. So, and they were like, oh, okay, great. We're going to help this other family. This is awesome. That's wonderful. Yeah. So, and so I think were... kids are more open. Oh, they are. They're so these conversations than adults are. Little sponges that they are, right? And there, so many children are like, "Oh, okay, that's great. That's so exciting." And and you just you tell them that you're doing something, and they understand the amazingness behind it before somebody is before one of my friends understands the amazingness behind mm -hmm. it because my friends has more questions, right? Mm -hmm. My friends like, "Well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, what about this?" Where my five year old's like, "Damn, that's awesome." 
you know, and, and they're, and they move on with their life. Like they're like, great, go do it. Bye. <laughs> Make me a sandwich. For you. <laughs> so, <laughs> Let's talk about something else. Yeah. 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 So my, my family um, has always been supportive and we like to definitely share with our surrogates that we bring in that, you know, we, we'd love to help you explain it to your family. My husband is a support person for other husbands. If we ever have a surrogate come to us and say, my husband's very much on the fence. He has some questions. Who can he talk to? Our, my entire support team has spouses that are available if they need to be. So my husband, my boss's husband, uh, like they will get on the phone with these spouses and be like, yeah, this is the real story. This is the way it works. Uh, and they'll get into the hard stuff with these dads so that they know what to expect. There's 100% transparency with us. We also offer support like no other. Like we will, we will talk to your kids. We'll talk to your spouse. Do we need to talk to your friends? Like, do we need to just invite them into the support group so they can yeah. see how much support you have? Uh, our support workers, our surrogate support workers are in constant contact with our surrogates. Our intended parent support workers are in constant contact with intended parents. Like there's nobody missed in the process. The website, actually, it talked a lot about how you support through a village. So see, you're agents in particular, you support both parties from A to Z. So you connect them with other parents, other mothers, uh, birth mothers that have gone through the process so yep. they can so, connect. And, and we will separate them out. So the surrogates have their own surrogate support group. The intended parents have their own intended parent support group. Mm -hmm. And then there's a community group where they can interact with each other. So we manage, we try to manage all three and we try to have them built organically. Um, and of course they're private groups. Nobody else can see what you're posting. But one of the reasons why Jennifer built this company the way she did is mm -hmm. because we had both been through different agencies where we didn't receive that support. Mm -hmm. So Jennifer built this agency based on support that she felt was needed. She felt it was something lacking in the industry within Canada, that it had become a little bit more of a more of a factory process. Oh, you're pregnant. Great. Uh, mm -hmm. We'll see. We'll talk to you in 38 weeks when you deliver. Um, and then, you know, maybe we'll follow up to see if we can sign you up again. Where Jennifer built this, this model that she has works. It works well. And communication is the biggest part of our business model. Communication and transparency is the biggest piece that, that we like to offer. So surrogates reach out to me all the time. And I am like three levels up from where their support system starts. But they can call me anytime. Mm -hmm. They don't have to talk to their support worker if they don't want to talk to their support worker about something specific. Or if their support worker is not available, then you know they'll call me or they'll call Jennifer. And Jennifer's above me. And mm -hmm. Jennifer answers the phone. And she's like, what can I help you with? And if you need help, I'm going to help you. So, you know, we, we kind of set the tone that it doesn't matter who you're talking to. We are a team. And what do I need to do to help you to, to make this better? So, That's amazing. Yeah. So That's it's, amazing. it's a great system. Um, there's really, I mean, there is a hierarchy, but if a surrogate knows that she needs something urgently or if an intended parent needs something urgently, they talk to any of us and their issues are dealt with. We have a 1-800 number system, but, uh, but it was interesting because they're like, oh, okay, is it okay that I talk to you? I'm like, absolutely, it's okay that you talk to mm. me. You know, they'll call Jennifer and they'll be like, is it okay that we've kind of skipped the line here? And she's like, absolutely. Like, what do I need to do to help you? Mm -hmm. So it is, That's it's definitely a, a village feel. It's definitely, mm -hmm. um, you know, and our support workers can come to us with anything. Like, let's say someone says, um, I want to be surrogate to my friend or this couple. Um, for them, could they come to you as a unit and say, I want to be a surrogate for them? And then you'd start the process to see if it, it would work or can they also do it on their own? 
something that JA offers differently than many other agencies is that we will offer individual support for independent journeys. So we allow those surrogates that might not have the support of an agency that they might be with, or they might be matched independently without an agency to come into our support groups and Mm. get the support that they need. It's not like we're sending them a bill because we're not. But if somebody comes to us individually, want to be George's surrogate, George has been their best friend for 15 years and doesn't have a partner, I want to be George's surrogate. Can you help me? We would just assist the surrogate through the process. What she needed to do, we wouldn't necessarily liaison with the legals and the clinic. I read that you lobbied to um, 30 members of the parliament in Ottawa about necessary updates or changes. I'm curious, what are you trying to change or is it just creating an awareness? So this was actually an undertaking by Fertility Matters. I do believe that is the name of the group. So Fertility Matters started this process quite a few years ago because the Assisted Human Reproduction Act is not clear in many cases. And there is a component in the act that allows for criminal charges to be laid. The way that the legislation is written, it basically says, you know, you can go to jail for 25 years and be fined up to $500,000 for paying a surrogate, but they don't make it clear what's a payment, what's not. To bring awareness to surrogacy, that surrogacy is legal, that surrogacy can happen, and that you're not going to go to jail if you have a surrogate because of the way it's put out Wow. So it's 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 very expensive. I don't have all this very specific details with me at the moment. But mm-hmm. so this group was created to bring awareness to that, to bring awareness that there that it needs to be removed from the criminal code because there's no specific legislation that says what you can and cannot pay for. So it's all subjective. It, it this is very like wish-washy because obviously the government is aware that it's happening. Yeah. So Anthony Housefather, I think he might be in your area, actually. He's a, a, a member of parliament and he actually brought forth a bill, I think last year, maybe 18 months ago, to decriminalize surrogacy in Canada and to take this criminal component out. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we did as a group, and I was very fortunate to be involved, doctors, lawyers, agency owners, agency staff, surrogates, intended parents. We all got together like Fertility Matters brought us together in Ottawa, separated us into groups and gave us the opportunity to speak to all the MPs that we could on lobby days to tell them all the different angles of surrogacy and how it's affected life in Canada, how it's affected my life as a surrogate, as an agency operator. um, The lawyers that deal with these things, there's the contracts that are put in place for surrogates and intended parents they're 40 pages long in some of these documents. They're not hmm. just signed on a napkin. Like there's some, there's a lot of legality to them. So it was amazing to me speaking to some of these MPs that they didn't know. They didn't know the process of surrogacy. They didn't know a lot of things about surrogacy. So I was very surprised, uh, but I was very grateful for the opportunity to, to continuously speak to them. So I was able to lobby these MPs with other members of the surrogacy community to say, hey, you know, this change needs to be made. So there's been a lot of activity in changing the legislation with the exception of this criminal component. So Fertility Matters is, has done a great job in bringing the the issue to light. They've done a great, great job in making sure that we are educating the government because the government officials that are making these decisions don't know what we know. And yeah. it's just, they've just never been through it. Mm. Um, and I think until you have that personal experience, it's just one of those things, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that it's it's important work. I think it's important that we are talking about surrogacy in Canada and fertility issues 
and especially when they come out in the media and, you know, we're fighting for the rights of people to have families. We want people to build their families, but without fear of being charged. Right now, is there a fear of that or a risk of that? Because I know for someone that's never done it, and if they hear it's illegal to get paid, they might be hesitant to there, do it. It definitely causes hesitancy on both sides of the coin. Um, if you don't take the opportunity to get the education or to do the research, you just won't go any further if you think it's illegal to be paid, but there's not another option. Um, and for intended parents, it really is because you know, they need to ensure that everything they're reimbursing falls into the guideline. So there's a fear that they might reimburse something that's not within the guideline and that they're going to be penalized for it. So we need that taken away. That needs to go. Mm-hmm. If my intended parents want to send me flowers, they should be able to do that without fear of a criminal charge. And that's mm-hmm. part of part of the guideline is that you're not allowed to give gifts, per se, um, that would be considered. I mean, they're not going around charging people with this. This is not something they're even actively pursuing as a, an, on a criminal level just because yeah. it's so ridiculous. So <laughs> just because of that. like my It's an old law. It is an old law. And, and should they worry about the police, the RCMP showing up at their door? No. So there, it, it, there's other archaic. more important yeah. things to deal with. Exactly. So, and I think it's important too, because, you know, in 1988, people weren't using surrogates. People, even in the 90s, people weren't using surrogates. IVF was not a big thing then, you know, and the procedures for IVF in the 80s and 90s were so poor that they were, you know, transferring four or five, six embryos at a time, hoping one would stick, right? That's what happened to that lady that had eight babies. She ended up pregnant with all of them. So, you know, science has come a long way and the laws need to come along with it. And the laws need to come along and help these parents. These are Canadian families that they're preventing from building their family. And that's Mm -hmm. all it is. They're just preventing them from building their family because of the fear that they're allowing. So I just have uh, two quick questions before we finish. For a woman, why would you say now is a great time to become a surrogate mother? Now is now more than ever is a great time to become a surrogate because there's so much opportunity to help somebody. Um, I think that as a mom, as a woman, knowing other people that have gone through fertility issues, you know, it's it's a good opportunity to do something amazing for yourself. Any opportunity that you can take to enrich your life should be taken. And, you know, I think that it's important to know that surrogacy can enrich your life. It can be an amazing experience. And here at JA, we will do our very best to make sure it is an amazing experience. But any opportunity that you can take to learn something about yourself, to allow some personal growth between you, your family, your spouse, education, um, you know, is something that's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. So where can listeners learn more about your services at the agency? Are you present on any social media platforms, Uh, helpful resources maybe you'd like to recommend? Uh, Give us all the details. Sure, sure. So we do have Facebook, of course, everybody has Facebook. um, (laughs) And that is just JA Surrogacy Consulting. We also have our Instagram, and it's the same, J.A. Surrogacy Consulting. We do have resources available on our website, which is www.jasurrogacyconsulting.com. And that also allows you to contact us. There is a contact us option, and the contact us option will actually put you in touch with me. And I'd be happy to answer any questions at all. If you just hit contact us um, as an intended parent or as a surrogate, doesn't matter we would be happy to answer all questions and help you get your journey started. 
One last question I ask everyone that comes on the podcast. So we all know that being a parent is a roller coaster of emotions and experiences. Keeping motherhood inspired, what one thing have you found kept you inspired and energized throughout oh, your parenting journey? <laughs> I don't know how to answer this question. Uh, it's the one question I don't know how to answer. Because for me, just getting up and seeing my kids be happy every day was enough to keep me going, I guess. I, I don't you know, I raised six kids and they're all very good human beings. And I just put a lot of a lot of faith in God. I, I do. Um, I believe that mm -hmm. the universe gives me what I need, not necessarily what I can handle. Sometimes I think I can't handle it. But the universe says, yes, you can. But just being a mom, I, uh, being a mom is an inspiration to me, like just being able to be a mom, being able to be a mom to six little human beings and be able to partake in their life and help them to become good citizens, you know, pretty much how I've lived my life. Thank you for listening to another episode of Citrus Love, Keeping Motherhood Inspired podcast. If you think someone would enjoy to listen to this episode, please share it with them. You can share the link wherever you're listening or go to our website at www.citruslove.com slash episode and the number where you will find the episode as well as all the information about the guests or the specific episode. The best way to get our podcast ranked is by leaving me a review wherever you're listening, two, three, four, five, six stars, whatever you feel reflect podcast. This will not only let me know what needs to be improved as well as what you particularly love. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll get the next episode. And thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye guys.